Welcome to TalkEerie.com's Joel Natale Show, Erie, Pennsylvania's daily podcast. Every day, we tackle the biggest issues that the Erie, PA region faces. Stay informed and involved as we advance the narrative of Erie. Now, here's Joel Natale. With Aaron Lonke, he's on the mayor's staff uh, on the fifth floor of Erie City Hall. Aaron is live via the telephone. How are you doing today, Aaron? Joel, I'm doing well. Always good to talk with you. All righty, so um, let's get caught up with the census because obviously that uh, is super important. It only happens once every 10 years, and we need to get it right this time, don't we? We do. Um, the biggest thing that we have at risk here is our federal funding, like you said. Um, now, we all pay federal taxes, so a lot of people might ask, where are my federal tax dollars going? Um, well, if we get an accurate count in Erie, we're going to get more federal tax dollars back to us if we don't get that accurate count we're going to potentially lose up to uh one billion dollars in federal funding uh for area and that goes to everything from schools to our street paving to community centers um, our hospitals first responders uh, there are so many things that this goes to and it, it is crucial that everybody take the census so that we get the accurate count we know we have enough people here to reach a hundred thousand but uh, we need to make sure that those people are counted. All right. So, you know, one of the biggest questions I get all the time is, is how do they know that we have so and so, such and such a number? Uh, is it, it's all based on algorithms and things and statistics, right? Well, the, the, uh, in between the 10 years, the Census Bureau does estimates and they, they send out some smaller surveys here and there. Um, I'm not a statistician per se, but, uh, they do get an estimate that way. And we also know from a lot of our community groups, uh, we have a number of new Americans in, in the city of Erie. We have a lot of different neighborhoods and communities that um, these community centers or neighborhood groups have a better, um, have better tabs on and, and know the, the neighbors in those areas. So it's a mixture of a number of things that uh, the city's taking a look at. But um, one of the estimates that uh, our chief of staff has mentioned, she, uh, she said that, you know, it's, up to 50,000 people that we uh, that will not be counted in the census. Um, that was the estimate we have uh, because the people are here. It's just not everyone's getting counted. So we want the people in that 50,000 group that the Census Bureau expects won't be counted to be counted um, because it's this money is, is crucial for us as a community. And there is definitely something that comes back, even if it's just the simplicity of getting more streets paved and making sure that maintenance is done, or you go into some more complex things like um, our community center programs and making sure we have classroom technology, financial aid for, um, for college, those kind of things. There's something that, that attaches to everyone, something that affects uh, every citizen here in Erie. You know, this is a political year, and there's a lot of talk around the Electoral College and also, you know, who represents us in Congress this has a direct impact on that as well. Right. The redistricting um, that they take into consideration, it's our population. These things, these electoral, uh, and with the Electoral College, how, how much representation we get in Congress, those are all uh, you know, contingent upon how many people are counted. So not only the federal funding, but also our, our representation on a national scale for Erie, our entire county and our city. So... Um, it, it is it is important. We have a voice that needs to be heard, and Erie, as you as you well know, 
uh, was in, in is setting up to be such an important piece of these national elections, especially the presidential election coming up. So Erie's on the map. People know who Erie uh, is and who we are. And they're, they're finding out in recent years how important we are to the national scene. So we need to keep that up and make sure that we have the representation uh, that we deserve. All right. You you had shared, and again, county executives share this also on Wednesday, that the city of Erie is at a 64% self-response rate. In 2010, we were just under 70%, meaning that we're missing like 6,000 people to respond. Uh, we got to shake the shake the trees loose and get that that missing fruit, don't we? Yeah, it's we we are really setting up. We want to meet what we did in 2010 at that 70 percent level. We need 6,000 people counted. We have we have 12 days, um, and we need to get those 6,000 counted. Of course, we want more, but we need to meet that 70 percent mark. So it's so important. Uh, if you've already taken the census, talk to your family, your cousins, your your parents, your grandparents, um, the aunts, uncles, your, your neighbors, your colleagues, uh, your friends. It's it's so important that we get the word out to do this. And Joel, one of the cool things we're doing now too um, is we're running a promotion uh, in the city here. So if if you live in the city, you can win a thousand dollars just for completing the census. It's a enter to win contest. All the details are online at uh, censuserie.com. And uh, the, the packages we're giving away weekly are $100 to different restaurants and businesses from Erie. So, for example, this week, if you enter to win um, the $1,000 after you take the census, you can also be entered to win a $100 gift card to Pineapple Eddie's if you do it before Monday. Nice. And then the following week, we're going to have another one. So um, the sooner you enter the contest, the more chances you have to win. Uh, but it, there's so many reasons to do this. And honestly, some people will ask me, you know, I want to volunteer. I want to help out in our community. I don't know what I can do. And the answer to that is this literally takes 10 minutes and oftentimes less. And this is the single most impactful thing you can do for your community for the next decade. And it'll take you 10 minutes. It's nine easy questions. Um, and it, it can have so much impact. So just so we understand, there also is uh, employees of the U.S. Census going around and canvassing, but it's nearly impossible for them to find every person. Uh, uh, It's just so much easier for people to just self-present and do the form online or on the phone, right? Right. You you know, with with this year being um, so different than every other year, I think – most of it, most of us have experienced in our lifetime. Um, things have changed. Our deadline for the census got moved up and moved back. So we're kind of we are in crunch time. We're you know, and those census takers can't reach every door. The quickest, most effective, best way to do this is just to go online, uh, take the census, and, and get it done, uh, you know, yourself so that we can get that on. Uh, but all the details, censuserie.com. It'll take you to. Um, guide you through where to take the census online and then uh, to enter the contest as well. So censuserie.com. And another thing I do want to mention is um, the impact of what this has. We talked about, okay, we might lose up to uh, a billion dollars if we don't get these last uh, 6,000 people counted. Um, Each person that is counted in the census is worth 
$21,000 for the next 10 years. So every time we get another person counted, um, you know, we're, we're building upon that and we need to make sure that we get to that, that, uh, 70% mark coming up here and exceed it if we can, but every person, $21,000 for the next 10 years. Wow. That's, that's un, unreal. All right. So again, let's say you have, you know, you've misplaced that letter that you got in March or, you know, some people have gotten five letters, but uh, people are really bad with their mail or the mail just hasn't come. You Can you still yeah. self-present online or on the phone? Yes. So um, if you if if you're still you know needing to do that, there's a couple ways you can still respond. The easiest way is to go to online the um, the contestcensusery.com will guide you through all of that. Um, it, and there's a number you can call as well. So the number you can directly take the census over is eight four four three three zero twenty twenty. Again, that's eight four four three three zero twenty twenty. And you can do it over the phone with a representative and uh, get your information in that way. So um, multiple ways to do this. If you still have that mail in, uh, uh, mailer, you can actually send that in as well, but um, online or on the phone. And I think that uh, th- there are so many ways to take it this year. This is the first year that the Census Bureau has ever done an online process. So we're trying to make it as accessible as we can so that uh, we'll get everybody to take it. But um, if you if you remember one thing from this conversation, it's uh, the information you need to know is all at censuserie.com. Censuserie.com. That's where you got to find it. And and if you happen to be outside the city, the county needs you too. And so uh, you know my uh, my 2020 census.gov is where you go to to fill out the form. We actually had somebody from McCain Township who said, "I don't even know anything about this. I haven't seen anything." So it's very possible that we're missing folks, and it's really important to the to like you say to make sure that the people in your sphere of influence have done this as well. And that's kind of that, kind of that, um, you know, telephone game. You spread it, you know, uh, out uh, but through word of mouth to just say, you know what, uh, I think I want to make sure that uh, we come together. It's another way that you could contribute to the common good. And certainly when we're talking about education and roads and, and, and the sheer, the sheer, uh, help for the homeless and, and housing and, 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 uh, and of course, representation, it's so important. Right. Our, our children's health insurance that go, that goes through the state. When we talk about public health disasters or emergencies, our response to that, making sure our first responders have the equipment and the training that they need to respond to uh, very specific situations or large scale situations. Those are all things that we as citizens need and deserve and we wanna have the best access to the best care we can get in a hospital and the best um, funding we have for the police and firefighters and even things like blight removal and revitalizing neighborhoods, that comes from there. Uh, Parks, money for parks and playgrounds um, and th- there is so much, I can't even list all the things that we have that, that this would help, but, um, th- this federal funding, so many organizations depend upon it. And, uh, we, we are a city under a lot of change and a lot of good change and new energy and new innovation coming to town. It, it is in the process of being reborn in a very positive light. And th- this, 
is going to affect our next 10 years. And honestly, I can't imagine what a year is going to look like in 10 years. I'm very excited because there's so much good going on here. Uh, but this, this is a huge chunk of that too. And we need you to do it. It's the census, my center, I'm sorry, the census We have 12 days. We have till the yeah. 30th of September and, uh, the 12 days of census are right here. Uh, we, we need to make sure that every day we have that progress moving. So, I, I can't stress it enough, Joel. All right. CensusEerie.com gives you all the information, and, and, and also you'll have your chance to win some great prizes, including $1,000 in cash. So the mayor will uh, will uh, get us up to date next Friday, right? How we're doing? Absolutely. He is excited to come on. Um, hopefully we'll have some updates and see those numbers go up. Uh, we're very, very um, hopeful that you know we're pushing the word over the weekend here and we're going to keep on moving up, but it has been moving. It's attainable. We can get to that 6,000. Um, we just need everybody's help and counting everybody in a household. So um, whether that's, you know, a family member, grandma, grandpa lives with you. If you have a roommate, uh, a friend living with you, I mean, everybody that is physically living in that address is, should be counted. So, yeah, that, that tiny little baby, do not leave them out because uh, uh, that Correct. census money really, really helps as they get educated and brought up over the next 10 years. Aaron Lonke, he's the marketing strategist for the Office of the Mayor. Aaron, always great to talk to you. We like to keep things a little bit lighter on a Friday, and so we're excited to have local teacher and author Jonathan Burdick with us. He is a history teacher in the Union City School District and also is the author of his own blog about Erie history. We have uh, Rust and Dirt, and so uh, welcome, Jonathan. So, so glad that you're on with us. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me. All righty. So tell us a little bit about your origin story. Where'd you grow up? Are you a transplant or, or did you grow up here in Erie? I'm mo- mostly at Crawford County. I grew up uh, out near Cusawago and in, then we moved into town when I was 12, right into Cambridge Springs. And then I lived my senior year in Union City, where I now work. Um, and then in Erie, Mill Creek. So currently... Well, I'm on Mill Creek and East Granby Boulevard, though. So, where'd, where'd you go to college? Uh, where'd you get your degree? Uh, I got a degree from Edinburgh. That's my undergrad. And then I got my education master's also at Edinburgh. And my history master's I got at Slippery Rock. Oh, good for you. Wow. All right. So where does the uh, where did the passion for history come from for you? So I've always been, like, since I was a little kid, I've always liked stories. Um, I was the nerd that had his face in a book. Face. I, I used to read the encyclopedias for fun, that kind of stuff. Oh, my gosh. I think part of, yeah. I, I'm, well, I'm simpatico with you, okay, Jonathan? I'll just tell you right now, you know? <laughs> well, I mean, if you if you know where Cusawago is, uh, you're literally out in the middle of nowhere. Um, my closest neighbor my was a friend of mine, and he was like, a half a mile away so you know that was pre-internet and we only had four tv stations so i guess you just get you know you find things to keep yourself occupied and we had one of those old school encyclopedias i don't know if like it was a door-to-door salesman that sold it to us funkin wagnalls oh yeah (laughs) and i had my favorite i had my favorite excerpts like i would read about the amazon rainforest over and over and over again or medieval Europe over and over again. Wow. Uh, so I guess that's where it started. And then 
you know, as a big movie nerd as a kid, because again, you're out there, you're bored, you have VHS tapes, and you just watch the same movies over and over. And a lot of them are historical movies and Ben Hur, Spartacus. Um, when I was a little bit older, Braveheart, and which is historically a disaster as a movie, but I still love it. <laughs> so you really have a, uh, a, 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 you know, you at least early on, you kind of gravitated to kind of that big world history, that that large. Uh, uh, pre-modern uh, um, narrative. Did, what what in American history is kind of like uh, really piqued your interest before we jump into the eerie history here? Well, that's actually a really good point. I think that was that's sort of like ancient Greek, ancient Roman, um, Middle Ages. That that's definitely what attracted me growing up as a kid. I think part of it was because it felt so otherworldly. Mm-hmm. It felt almost like fantasy in a way. And I was always attracted to, you know, fiction. I read a lot of fiction too. And then as I got older, I'm going to probably peg it to 10th grade when it was an English class and we were allowed to pick any topic at all, at all that we wanted to write our, our big 10th grade research paper on. And I chose the Vietnam War because wow. for whatever reason, the curriculum hadn't caught up yet and we never, we, we didn't learn that. And you know, it's weird because it ended only 10 years before I was born, but to me, it just seemed like ancient history. You know, when you're little, like anything that happens the decade before you were born just seems so long ago. Right. But the more that I I read about it and studied it, the more, more fascinated I became. And then, you know, reading about the counterculture and, you know, the rise of the new right with Reaganism. And um, so I'd say, actually, m- most of my expertise would be post-civil war america nowadays interesting so uh so that's that's a great place to pivot because when you think about post-civil war america that's really when erie took off was post-civil war i mean again we had what the uh the great uh uh, the great, uh, great, you know, what is it? The the grades, the the, the gauge wards, right? Yes. And, you know, we're we're just we're so backwards and so uh, insular, so that we could get our little pound of flesh from every traveler or every uh, ton of uh, of, of uh, freight that went through. But um, it wasn't until really we we saw the great uh, influx of immigrants, whether it was Germany uh, or. Uh, the Irish and then, you know, the Europeans, the Southern Europeans, like the Italians and the, the Greeks and then the, um, and the Polish and the Eastern Europeans that, that came over that we saw our, our big critical mass and our huge numbers. Um, I like to always say in 19, in 1930, we were a bigger city, I want to say, than Miami uh, in 1930, which is right. kind of ridiculous to think about right now. <clears throat> Yeah, I think Erie, when you look at like, you know, Gilded Age, late 1800s, early 1900s, um, I mean, it's it's a wholly American story. And you've, you've got, you know, the Great Migration, then you've got the, uh, like you said, all the different immigrant groups coming in, and you have lots of tension between them, and then you have the union and non-union workers tension in Erie. I mean, I mean there's just, there's, there's so many facets of that time period that really have just been underexplored at least in the popular conscious of, of Erieites. 
Um, yeah, we, we, you know, and I, I think that's probably uh, true of most cities where you kind of live in the near and here now. And just like what you just said is, it, it, you know, Vietnam seemed like it was ancient history for you because you weren't born. We tend to think that all of history starts when we come on the scene. So uh, it, it's a natural tendency. Um, all right. So growing up, you were into like these these big epic uh, parts. And I would imagine you were... Uh, you were, you know, a Harry a Harry Potter kind of kid, or or not so much. Actually, weirdly, I read the first. So I was born in '86, so I think the first Harry Potter came out when I was in seventh grade, and I read it. But then, actually, I didn't read the rest of them until I got to college, and finally, my like my best friend had read them all, and mm-hmm. I used to just like playfully poke fun at them and then finally i read them all in college and i was like okay this is really good yeah um, now i was actually more into like uh i guess i i read just a lot of weird things um i read a lot of sci-fi okay um, Dune, yeah Dune, um that kind of stuff sure um, and then of course i read a lot of nonfiction. i read a lot of like world war ii history middle ages history stuff like that uh Tell what are what are some of the kids at, at uh, Union City High? What what are some of the the books that they love to read? What is the what's what's the hip book or series to read these days? It's not Twilight I, anymore, right? No, not at all. <laughs> I I actually I finally entered the point. So when I started teaching at twenty two, like culturally, my students and I were basically on the same page. Um, I, they're now starting to like listen to things and read things and watch things where I actually have no clue what they're talking about. <laughs> okay. Um, so, it, but it is funny because every time I see a kid pull out a book, I say, oh, what are you reading? And they'll show me. And I'll be like, yep, definitely never heard of that. Wow. So, yeah. Uh, I'm I'm definitely at that new cultural divide between millennial and yeah, the Zoomers. Gen. Yeah. Wow. Uh, all right. Let's, let's, uh, let's, let's get back on track here. So, uh, you you land at Union City where you actually went to high school, and um, again, the life of a teacher is pretty busy. But somehow you're able to kind of uh, get get more. You have, you're a high capacity kind of guy. So you let's talk about all the stuff that you're doing right now. You're writing for the Erie Reader pretty much on a per issue basis, right? You have something there. I try to get everything in every issue. I get, I get major anxiety if I miss one. Okay. And then you're you're keeping your blog. Is it a blog, Twitter feed? What is the Rust Dirt? I don't really, I don't really know exactly what it is. It's it's got a weird origin story. We can we can talk about later. Yeah. If you want. Um, you know, a lot of people call it a blog. I know the Erie Reader when they put my byline, they they refer to it as a blog, but. I, I don't know. I kind of think it as a, a blend of history, current events, culture, and I don't know if I just want to get something out there to the thousand or so followers I just posted. So but with an emphasis on history. So I yeah. guess it's kind of like a I call it a public history project, I guess, is the best way to describe it. But that that's 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 remarkable. That's really cool. And what is I I, I you know, before we go to our break, what is your process? Because I think uh, what what has astounded me and again, I love history, but I don't I, I don't have the discipline or time like you have to to dig in. Are you at the library? Are you at the heritage room? Are you pulling microfish like for every every week? So I, I do it I do all of those things. Um, a lot of it just depends on how busy my schedule is and 
you know, that sort of thing. I, I like to spend all my free time with, with my boys. They're seven and three. So I try to do as much of it. Like if it's something I can bring back home, I'll bring it home. And I do most actually everything at the dining room table. So, cause I don't like to be holed up away from my boys. So sure. I'll have like all my dining room table, which I'm sure my wife just loves that just full of all my research, my computer and my phone where I'm looking up different things. And um, then my boys are crawling on me as I'm reading things. And um, so my process is really chaotic if you look at it, um, but it makes sense in my brain and it, and it works out for me. So the, the, uh, I mean, your, your, your images, I just saw, I think today you were showing an image of, of the harbor, which was an, an old uh, postcard, and I'm like, where the heck did he find that? Where are you finding this stuff? Now, now with the pandemic, I'm pretty much I, I'm limited mostly to digital archives now. So I think I got that one off a of Harvard archive. Okay. I always try to include the source. So if you guys are on the Rustin um, Dirt Instagram or account, I always try to include where I got it at the end. Sometimes I forget and slip up, but. Yeah, Harvard has a really impressive digital archive. Um, Pennsylvania, this state, has a really impressive digital archive. Penn State University has a really cool archive that archives just dozens of Pennsylvania newspapers going back all the way to the early 1800s. Um, so really, kind of like my dining room table, uh, anytime I'm looking for stuff, I'm, I'm all over the place. On a basically it per issue basis, I, I saw that you did a uh, another conversation with Tyler James. Tyler's an old friend of mine. Uh, oh, you know, no. I, I lost track of him when he went to L.A. You know, uh, he's, he's my friend from Costawaga. I told you about. He was my neighbor half a mile away, and we lived this very country lonely existence out there. So, yeah, yeah, that's him. We used to do praise band together. So I mean, he's just great a he, he's a great guy, and, and he can wail on the guitar. So um, yeah. yeah, that's that's amazing. Um, all right, let's talk. Let's talk about uh, some of your favorites here. So when we're talking about eerie history. And again, we all gravitate to a certain area. Like right now, I think I I, I got a, um, a at least ten years ago now, I got a, a total awakening about World War II. It might have been Saving Private Ryan or Schindler's List, or you know, I mean. But I went from zero interest in in what the war was about to an obsession, right? And then, I mean. I mean, is that does that resonate with you? Are there certain areas, of whether it's eerie history or just basic history, that like you can't get enough of? I guess the best way to answer that is what what my obsession has just been is that history that's kind of in the dark corners, dusty and cobwebby, kind of forgotten. And the cool thing about that is it it takes you all over the place. I mean, I've written about GE labor history. I've written about the the King of the Hobos, Leon Ray Livingston. I've written about the the KKK, of course, in the 1920s and, and their, their significant presence in Erie at the time. Uh, so I'd say that's, that's where I get like an adrenaline rush is you're looking for these stories that have been mostly forgotten um, or overlooked and you're you're really utilizing detective work you're you're looking all at all different sources you're looking through old books old journals and you're trying to piece together okay what exactly 
isn't that happen here? Is there a story that's worth engaging and telling? And then what does that story tell us about where we are today? Um, and I may not ever explicitly say how it relates to today, but generally that's what I'm, you know, when you're, when you're looking for a story worth telling from Erie's past, um, particularly a forgotten story, that's, that's what captivates me as a researcher and writer. And hopefully as people who read my stories, they, you know, they feel the same way. It, the, uh, you wrote the big story and I, and I actually, uh, posted the story on my, uh, show group on Facebook, uh, about the pandemic, about 1918. Um, in that article, you say that this was not first front page news, even though, you know, people were getting sick across the board as Erie got uh, sick on the second wave. And I actually read in the John Barry book on the third wave in December, we got sick again. But talk about the pandemic, yeah, that, you know. That John Barry book, that's, that's fantastic. I read that back when it came out. And <clears throat> actually, I wrote uh, three years ago, or maybe two years ago, I wrote an article for the Erie Reader about the Spanish flu, actually, because my my son had had a very severe fever, and I used that as like the anchoring to my story. Um, so that's, I think I've written three Spanish flu stories, but the last one that you're referencing, it's remarkable. You look through all the old Erie newspapers, and it's never front page news. And it's really complicated as to why. Um, as I noted in there, you know, when I was talking about sort of the failures of the current administration, I was, I, I don't give them too many breaks, but uh, I was also saying, hey, it's, they're not the first one to fail during this. Like Woodrow Wilson literally not once ever even mentioned the pandemic publicly. Um, and they were focused solely on the war. So in Erie and newspapers all around the United States, they didn't straight up censor, but they buried it most of the time and you know you had to go three four pages into Erie and, and you know 504 people died during that mm. winter I mean it was I mean it was pretty crazy and and you it never once even brushed the front page yeah the uh, and and you know reading Barry's book he begins the book I, I want to make sure I'm getting this right but he begins the book to talk about how how basically Wilson had a clamp on on the media in in the eight in the nineteen teens because it was hundred percent all about the war effort and war bonds and funding the effort and so that that basically was the basis of really people not knowing what was going on in their own communities and then then of course the the craziness of how the uh, the army worked, how the how the armed forces basically did not protect the, itself by moving troops around uh, from from camp to camp oh, on you know I mean it's just insane right. Um, and then, uh, go ahead. I was gonna say, and uh, I think it was the second one I wrote back when quarantine started. Um, I looked at Philadelphia, and the public health director. It started in the naval yard in Philadelphia, and the public health director like told Philadelphia, "Oh, it's cool. You guys are safe. It's contained to the naval yard." And they held the massive parade, and that's what I mean. Philadelphia, it was like a horror movie. Wow, um, bodies piling up in the streets. Um, they had to take over breweries to try to put the bodies so they wouldn't rot. I mean, it was 
just horrifying stuff. What else about that period, uh, again, when it comes to Erie, uh, is there, in your opinion, and again, this is a hypothesis of mine, it seems like there's an Erie before General Electric lands and after General Electric lands. When GE comes, this place just explodes. Is that accurate, Jonathan? Oh, definitely. And then you look at World War II when they... You know, they, they converted the plant and, you know, they built, I mean, they built housing to bring people in to work at, from all over. And, and that brought so much exposure to Erie, people that were coming from outside in to work at GE for the war effort. Um, and then you think about the labor organizing and, you know, that created some really good, good paying jobs. And yeah, it helped build the middle class in Erie, I would argue, for sure. Well, and uh, again, when I think about my parents coming right after the war, uh, they came from the coal mining towns of eastern Pennsylvania, and Erie was kind of the promised land post-war. And uh, that lasted for a while. I'd say that would lasted about 30 years. But by the time the mid-'70s hit, we started, you know, seeing that – you know that outsourcing, and we lost some of our really signature plan. I mean, I mean, Basiris Erie was named after Erie, and how does that go away, right? <laughs> yeah, I guess that's the <clears throat> the story of the Rust Belt in a nutshell. Um, you know, when we saw it happening in the 1970s, you know, it was a little, it was either too little, too late. We, we didn't know how to adjust and adapt or, you know, pivot is, I guess, the word we like to use now. Um, so, it, you know, there's a lot of lessons to learn from that time period. And we've definitely learned them here in Erie. Um, and, you know, we're getting there. We, we're definitely working on our transformation. We're, we're kind of like a mini Pittsburgh in a way, I'd say. I, 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 one of my hypotheses as well is that, uh, you know, in Pittsburgh, they made all the raw materials, they made the steel, they, you know, they, they converted the ore and so on. But here is where we ma- had advanced manufacturing. We made stuff out of it, whether it was ringer washers or organs or what, what, you know, a- any number of widgets, we made them here. Uh, uh, do you see that? I mean, do you see that story after story, whether it's the Barons or the or uh, Mr. Lord or so on? So when you look through the old newspapers, it's incredible. I love to look at old advertising. It's a weird thing that I like to do. Like my um, <clears throat> I got a big old tub of 1950s and 60s life magazines. <laughs> And I just sit there and I like the articles, but I just like look at the ads. So when I'm looking at old Erie ads, it is incredible how much was made here. And like you said, the organs, I mean, those, I think they were called, they were similar to my name. They were called like Burdette organs, one of them. Um, but yeah, there's just so many different little things. There's um, toilet separators. Oh, jeez. Uh, like they innovated. So those, Toilet se- public toilet separators that you see everywhere now were innovated here in Erie and manufactured here. And Jonathan, uh, great to have you here on the show. Um, I I want to kind of pivot now to we love to use the word pivot. Uh, you know, to uh, some of the famous folks or some of the fascinating people uh, that um, probably a lot of folks haven't heard about uh, from this era. You know, after the Civil War, I I, I mean. Uh, 
I mean, that's really when we kind of took off, right? Eight, late 1800s, early 1900s. Yeah, you definitely see, you know, post, post-Civil War, so like 1870s, 1880s, you see Erie start to really transform. You look at the census data and you can see, like, we, we grow exponentially leading up to the, the turn of the century. Um, so do you want to chat just about a few different? Yeah, let's, let's do it. Yeah, lead the way. Lead, lead, so us da- I, lead us down the pathway of history, right? So this would actually be a perfect time. Three years ago next week was my first story that I published in the Erie Reader. And it happened to be uh, about a guy that I'd been following since college that I was just fascinated with. And his name was Leon Ray Livingston. Uh, he also went by the, the, he was the king of the hobos. That was kind of a self described moniker that he gave himself or also a number one and there's a story behind that name i can get into in a minute but he was when i first discovered it it was just an old book of his and it was just a book about his time hoboing and he claimed to have traveled half a million miles by train only spending like 12 dollars that entire time and he came from a well-to-do german immigrant family and one day got in trouble at school and was afraid to face his parents. And this is the story he tells, at least. Um, I've never been able to actually confirm it. But he stole some of some money and some stuff from his home, and he ran away and never looked back and wow. spent the rest, the next 30, 35 years um, hoboing around the United States and, and actually even into like Central America and stuff like that. So eventually he would, as he got older, he would stop in Cambridge Springs. So that's what first stuck out to him about me. And he would spend winters um, boarding at a house in Cambridge Springs just to get off the road during that time. And then he always dressed really well around town. Like he had a really nice suit and he would only change into his hoboing clothes when he was traveling. He was known for actually having a, a, a good amount of money on him at any given time. And he carried around a scrapbook with him that he claimed, I've never been able to track this down. It's like my holy grail. Um, he had like Teddy Roosevelt and William Howard Taft's signatures on it from meeting them. And finally, he meets a young woman in Erie and falls in love. And she convinces him to settle down here. They had a home I know on Chestnut Street at one point. Uh, they, they lived in like two or three different areas in Erie from the census data I've found. And they had two children, and he spent the rest of his life writing these books, publishing them here in Erie and Cambridge Springs about his travels and also why you shouldn't go onto the road. Yeah. So a lot of his books, he had big warnings about watching your children and making sure that they don't go on this life on the road. And, you know, I took a lot of, when I was young, I took a lot of what he said at face value. Um, now that I'm a little bit older and a little bit more trained in history, I know there's a lot of embellishment and a lot of exaggeration. Um, some of it conveniently, he wrote a book about his travels with Jack London. He met Jack London when he was, this part is true. He really did meet Jack London and travel with him. Um, but he conveniently published the book a year after Jack London died. Okay. So, and, yeah. He, he didn't have a fact, che- a fact checker on that one. huh? Totally. And you can actually see he wrote Jack a, a letter shortly before he died and kind of asked for his blessing and permission and jack kind of gently shuts him down on Ooh. it's a weird letter 
he shuts him down and is like, nah, I don't really like this. Um, so, you know, here in Erie, how he made a living for himself was he'd go to churches and schools and organizations and they would all pay him. This would be throughout the 1920s and 30s. And they'd all pay him to speak about his experiences. And it was it was like an anti-hoboing message is what he um, kind of grifted as. So he he's a really fascinating figure that I think we've only tapped into maybe sure. you know two or three percent of his actual life story. That's really interesting. Um, the uh, you know that that same era, you know, you had um, you you had Ida Tarbell, right? Maybe a little bit earlier, but you know, here's this woman who you know grows up. Uh, in what Hatch Hollow or something like yeah. that, you uh-huh. know, <laughs> you know, in 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 the boonies, but basically almost single handedly takes down John D. Rockefeller. Oh, she was, she was remarkable. She was really cool, and she was so fascinating too because she also was against women's suffrage, which when I when I found that out blew my mind. But you can find her writings on how she justifies why women shouldn't be involved in politics and then she was a huge proponent against pro um prohibition and some of my favorite writings of hers are her anti-prohibition writings and on how she considered the prohibitionists the anti-alcohol bunch a bunch of crazed zealots that are willing to go to civil war over banning alcohol i mean she didn't pull any punches in her writing so yeah she was fascinating They've restored her house. You can go out to Titusville and um, her her childhood home has been restored. You can go up and visit the the little part of the attic that she wrote in as a teenager and very cool. Again, think about the people that that uh, in that era that would come to Cambridge Springs for the healing you know parts of the water. We can't even fathom that right now, but it wasn't that unusual. Isn't that what uh, FDR would do? That's where he passed away, was uh, in Hot Springs in Arkansas and so on. Uh, I mean, it, or no, that was Warm Springs, Georgia. Anyway, what what was the draw at Cambridge? It, and uh, have you done any research on that whole thing? Oh, yeah. I mean, my, my life growing up in Cambridge, I worked at the Riverside Inn for seven years. Oh, gosh. Okay. I, yeah, I mean, I, I could go on for days about the Riverside. And I mean, my, my heart still aches when I think about that beautiful inn. But um, yeah, Cambridge Springs is just this oasis that, I mean, we had presidents that came through. We had, we had the World Chess Championship held there. There was... Um, celebrities um, all come into this dinky little town um, because (laughs) based on a lie, really, uh, you know, they said that the mineral water, the spring water would do like all these things cure literally everything. And, you know, I guess it would hydrate you. That part was good. Uh, (laughs) You know, for the most part, (laughs) the most part, once um, Teddy Roosevelt passed the pure food and drug act where you had to essentially prove medicinal purposes and things um it's not a coincidence that the town kind of dried up with that with that law being passed wow so yeah so just one law and then all of the 
all the claims kind of wither away. Although, yeah. uh, you know, I always had a great lunch at, at the Riverside, you know. Uh, that's oh. where, that was one of our preferred locations when I worked in Edinburgh. There's yeah. there's no place like the Riverside. It was it was just growing up in that small town. You know, there's there's not much there. No. And then you have this, you know, all the other hotels burnt down. We had, you know, the massive hotel up where the prison is now that Alliance College eventually purchased and, you know, that burnt down. And just to have this Riverside Inn in this dinky little town of ours was it really was magical. It was a special place. Do you ever get into um, the oil industry in your research? Uh, I, I I read the book uh, that uh, Ron Chernow, who wrote you know Hamilton. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, he wrote the book called Titan on John D. Rockefeller, and it it, it surprised me. I mean, I hear this narrative about how Erie was left off, um, you know, from from you know really cashing into the oil industry. Uh, that 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 basically we we uh, shooed Rockefeller away, uh, and but according to Chernow's research, he was always going gravitating to Cleveland. Uh, did you have you ever gotten into any of the the oil patch? I definitely have. That is something I I would like to explore more. I guess because I'm writing for the Erie Reader. Yeah. I, I do dive into Crawford County occasionally. Um, I did write about Pithole City once, which, uh, oh man, like that's an HBO series. I'm just, <laughs> HBO call me. I will make you the greatest. How how crazy yeah. is that? That multiple banks and theaters and hotels and it, uh, nothing exists. It's, it's nothing anymore. It's, it's just, nothing. It's crazy. And you know, the characters in there, like Ben Hogan and, oh, I can't remember her name. Um, but they were, I mean, they're, they're literally characters out of just like a, a Shakespearean drama. I mean, wow. it's, it's fascinating. But in terms of like Rockefeller and stuff, you know, Ida Tarbell having such a, um, you know, such a, uh, just a problem with him in general. But then he, you know, then there was Edwin Drake who, really truly changed the world mm -hmm. and uh, m mostly died penniless. I mean, they, they did take care of them. A lot of these oil guys really, they did cut them some checks and, um, but considering the, the influence he could have had, I guess he just wasn't necessarily a great businessman. And, um, yeah, he, he kind of knew to, uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of stories like that where they get right. things started, but then then the real businessmen kick in, and that really was <laughs> that really was uh, Rockefeller. Um, yeah, it, it, and again, let let me make make it clear to the listeners: Erie did benefit from the oil industry being uh, at, at close proximity down in Titusville and in Oil City, but we and and honestly, there are many folks contemporarily will say. I'm so glad we didn't do the refining thing in Erie, you know, that, that the that the uh, ec the ecological toll that that would have had on our community. It, um, we would still be uh, suffering the ill effects of all that. But, you know, Cleveland is four times, five times larger than us now because True, basically yeah. of all that commerce that came to Cleveland. Right. Well, our, our at least French. Creek never caught on fire, though I guess, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Let's let's again. Let's see. Uh, let's pick apart 
World War One. What what do we know about uh, Erie's uh, impact with the war effort? I, I would imagine we were part of the war machine in World War One, like we like we were in World War Two. Maybe to not that full extent, right? Yeah, it was just that was the first thing I was going to say. It definitely wasn't to the extent of World War Two. I mean, World War Two Erie Erie was essential to the the war production effort. Um, but you know, World War One, everybody knew everybody knew somebody that went. You know, you look at the um, the nineteen eighteen yearbook for Erie High School, and everything everything about it is about former students that are off, you know, fighting. And they even have like students that are going to be like current seniors that are going to be going off to the war. Um, there's there's poems in it about the war. There's like drawings of, of soldiers. So like even the whole actual high school yearbook is just that's all all it was about. Um, you really so yeah, like you really like uh, digging into those first sources, right? Oh, I mean, that's yeah. that's that's where where the money is for you. Well, it's actually I, I make an effort. So, um, for Valerie Myers wrote an incredible um, expose, I guess you could say, on the Spanish flu, for instance, for uh, Erie Times, and I make sure I don't ever look at anything anybody else has written until I'm done. So I try to do, I mean, sometimes it's unavoidable, but I try to do all like the, the primary source research first. Cause I don't want anybody else like guiding. I, I just don't want it to get into my brain. Well, and, well, did you see anything contemporarily like in the yearbooks or, or, you know, in, in it, I don't know what colleges were still, were going at the time. I think Villa Maria, I mean, Gannon, Gannon was more in the twenties, right? Uh, Mercier's right, yeah. might have been in eighteen. I just wonder, you know, did did kids get sick? I'm thinking about this pandemic and and how how much the universities are really involved in contact tracing and and keeping their their students safe. Uh, what was there any indication that uh, that the younger folks were getting ill? Because that's who got really sick with the Spanish flu. Yeah. So, and of course, these two things were happening concurrently. So it's it's strange. Like, you've got the war and you've got a pandemic, and right. you're, you're kind of going back and forth when you're doing your research. Um, but yeah, it that's I think what made the Spanish flu so much different. Um, it's not good that today we we often kind of discount. Oh, they're all like seventies, eighties. Like, I, you know, I I certainly don't feel that way. But there is kind of a sense of okay, well, you know, they're older. All right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whereas the Spanish flu, the Spanish flu ripped through 20 and 30 years old, 30 year olds. You'll, you'll see like stories about, um, there's one I'm thinking of. He's like, he was like a 35 year old socialite. And there is a story just dedicated to everybody loved him. He was the life of any party that he went wow. to. And, um, you know, he succumbed to it. So that's definitely what made the, you know, between the, the war and the pandemic, that's what made that time much, much different than today. We're talking to Jonathan Burdick. He's a historian and, and uh, uh, writes a lot for the Erie Reader. What do you, what do you know, uh, John, uh, Jonathan, about, uh, the, um, about the, the Roaring Twenties and Prohibition here? I mean, we always know that we've always heard that, that you know, the idea of rum runners is a real thing. That we were we were doing a major amount of Canadian uh, uh, liquor coming uh, over the lake. Uh, 
have you done any digging on any of that? Yep, I first read a book in college. David Frew yeah. writes. He's actually not a historian by trade, but you would think he is because he writes some excellent history. And he wrote, um, I had to Google it actually real quick because I forgot the name. Yeah. Um, Midnight Herring, Prohibition and Rum Running on Lake Erie. Mm. And I read that in college. I just found it in my college library and I picked it up. And that dug me into, um, I wrote a couple of like research papers and stuff on it. And yeah, I mean, everything that you hear is true. I mean, there were speakeasies all over the city. Um, I found instances, and I think actually Fru even mentions it, where they were driving across Lake Erie back and forth in the winter. On the ice. On the ice to get, <laughs> I mean, you figure it's 40 miles. Right. So they, you know, they'd go across, they'd, they'd get the Canadian ale and whiskey and bring it back. Um, of course, they generally didn't come directly into Erie because that's where, you know, it was um, watched the closest. But they would come into Northeast, Girard, Harbor Creek, and then they could funnel the booze into Erie from there. That's incredible. Uh, wow. And I can't remember where I read it. It may have been Fru's book, but there are instances of people falling through the ice in their cars. Of course. <laughs> I mean, and there's, some, you know, somewhere down in the bottom of Lake Erie, there's some good uh, aged whiskey. <laughs> How, how about this story of Matthew Griswold telling his uh, Yaley buddy to to plant the GE plant in in Lawrence Park? Isn't I mean I mean again those are those are the rich heritage of our of our commercial uh, uh, of our commercial and, and industrial history. Um, do you think that could ever happen again? Where it's basically hey one buddy tells another buddy hey this is a good place to to expand your business. Erie's amazing. I, I think it was Sean Fedorko, Radius Cowork, just said something the other day. Uh, I don't know if he posted it on Facebook or where I saw it, but he was talking about just how amazing of a place Erie is. And yeah, I mean, you want an opportunity to come to a city with low, you know, very low housing costs tons of i mean we've got the lake we've got peak and peak in the winters we i mean we have everything you could ever want with no traffic right. ever yeah. um yeah I no think hurricanes absolutely. right i mean hurricanes no volcanoes <laughs> um wow i think my my friends and i were once talking about how if you were a internet startup go buy one of those mansions in titusville and you could have 20 people living in one of those mansions and you could start a, you know, a million dollar online startup. Of course, that's assuming, I guess their internet is fast enough out there. I'm not actually sure, but. Well, you, you, if you have the money, you could always bring the fiber into it. True. Um, yeah. so, so after World War One, you know, we have the pandemic, um, you know, right. Well, we're having Armistice Day, or, right? We're having Armistice Day during the pandemic, right? Uh, basically. Correct. Jeepers. Um, uh, but we move forward. We have uh, the, you know, we have this booming economy because GE is literally begging for people, literally around the world, to come. And and every other business was, you know, looking for workers. And uh, we we have the ramp up to World War Two. Um, you know, where, in your opinion, as you as you've researched this. Where do we make the mistakes? Like, I, I mean, 
during the community college conversation, by the way, you know, we're like, why didn't they just do this in 1965? You know, were, were we kind of uh, getting in, um, believing too much of our own hubris about how powerful our manufacturing base was? You know, I think it's easy when you're when you're getting you, when you're just getting comfortable with the way that things are. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of human nature that you you want to continue the way that things are. Um, I mean, still, a lot of people think of us as that city. You know, it's 2020 and people still think of us as that, you know, city that is GE and GE is that city. And of course, it's still an important part or Wabtec rather now. Um as are any of the remaining manufacturers that we have. But, you know, we know those those other places that have fled, they're not coming back. Right. Um, and, you know, it's easy in hindsight, I guess, to criticize. But I think it was just sort of human nature. We These places were disappearing. We tried to hold on to them. The unions, it was a lose-lose for them. Like, you you cave and then you know you're going to get trampled on and your workers are going to lose their living wages and and stuff like that whereas if you make a stand they're going to relocate the jobs so you know i try not to get on a a pedestal and tell them what they should or shouldn't have done It, it, it was just it's almost like a it really is a tragedy that well i think i think of things like uh you know being the uh, the hospital equipment, uh, basically, again, this might sound uh, hyperbolic, but we were pretty much the hospital equipment center of the universe. I mean, AMSCO, you know, the 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 surgery tables, the uh, you know the the sterilizers. We were making all of that here, or based that whole thing here. And, and again, you know, Mark's Toys. Again, we had one of the top brands of toys back to the tin toy era you know i mean they had the original licensing with walt disney was mark's toys i mean it's it's insane when you think about these names um i got one more minute with jonathan burdick what are you working on right now or what what do you really want to dig in that's something that you you really don't know a whole lot about yet so you know i i really want to eventually I mean, the next natural step for me is I, I want to write a book, but I'm too wishy-washy. And the nice thing about writing the articles is I, I can, you know, go from one thing to the next. You can but, be eclectic, <laughs> yes. Yeah, you know, eventually I do want to say, okay, this is what I want to focus on. And and I have the ideas. I'm not ready to say them. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I've got to narrow down about three or four ideas. And then once I commit myself to it, uh, that's that's hopefully where I go from there. What's your next article you're working on for the Erie Reader? Uh, I got one coming out about mail-in voting, actually, which okay. I was listening to a little bit before. Yeah. Um, and I'm not usually comfortable writing in the first person, but that one I'm, I write in the first person a little bit. You've been listening to The Joel Natale Show, Erie, Pennsylvania's daily podcast from TalkErie.com. Subscribe to our show on your favorite podcatcher and get involved by emailing joel at TalkErie.com.